You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 4 today to start with this. And this is a passage from Paul to to the church in Ephesus where he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, I think it's a great passage to start off with. And we're going to learn three points in this. When we talk about unoffendable, what do we mean by unoffendable? That's not actually even a word. Did you know that? (laughs) But these days, who cares, right? Um, But uh, we're creating it, Okay. What do we mean by that? Why be unoffendable? Why is it important to do that? Or what good is it? And then how can I possibly be unoffendable in this world and in this day? Okay, with everything that's going on. So we'll take these one at a time. First of all, what does it mean to be unoffendable? I think that Dallas Willard probably nailed one of the chief problems I face, I think we all face in life. He says, anger is the most fundamental problem in human life. Just think about that for a moment. Okay? And when we're talking about being unoffendable, we're talking about being slow to anger. Because if you look up any dictionary definition of what it means to take offense, it usually means getting angry or miffed or I can't believe it at someone, which is usually a response of anger. And we live in a trigger-happy age, easily anger, outraged about everything under the sun. You could probably look at Twitter on any given day of the week and find on Twitter the top two or three posts are some outrage at some event around the United States. Right, left, and center. People are just ticked off, man. And they believe they are rightly ticked off, and they have a right to be ticked off. That's part of the problem. You know, from protests that are happening during football games to those who voted differently than you did in the last election, from being a vegan or environmentally woke to those who are driving the biggest, baddest gas hog truck flying a Confederate flag. Everyone gets ticked off or hacked off or upset or shocked or outraged or flummoxed or punchy or pouty or pushy or demanding and downright selfish and I can't believe it and so we're gonna just share what I think the world should be like. And we as Christians too think we are entitled to our anger, that we should be angry. Brant Hansen wrote in this book, I used to think it was incumbent upon a Christian to take offense. I now think 
We should be the most refreshingly unoffendable people on a planet that seems to spin on an axis of offense. Forfeiting our right to anger makes us deny ourselves and makes us others-centered. When we start living this way, it changes everything. Actually, it's not even forfeiting a right because the right does not exist. So that's what we're talking about in this series. What does it mean to be unoffendable is to be slow to anger and realize, I don't have a right to my anger. I do not have a right to my anger. And we are really talking in this series about looking at this mind-blowing, paradigm-shifting, worldview-shattering teaching that the New Testament has called grace and how that affects everything. So Paul says in this passage that we said, wrote, uh, read just before, be angry and do not sin. Do not go, let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, see, some people will say right away, well, see, it says you can be angry. In fact, it's okay. To, there is this thing as righteous. Have you heard of righteous anger before? Try to find, though, a Bible passage that actually has that phrase, righteous anger, anywhere in the scriptures. Anywhere. You won't. Now, Paul says, okay, we get angry, but do not sin. And notice how he says right after that, he qualifies what that means. Be angry and do not sin with the next two phrases. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give an opportunity to the devil, which basically says, don't hold on to it. You get angry, let it go. I'm not being Disney here. I'm being biblical. So it appears when you do get anger, angry, you better let it go quickly. Otherwise, most likely you're giving the devil an opportunity. And that's the only passage in scripture where anger is put in this light at all. If you want to look through the rest of the scriptures, just so that you understand that we're trying to be biblical here about this, this is what it says elsewhere in scripture. In James chapter one, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, sometimes I think, well, I'm ang this is wrong. And but my anger is not helping the situation, is not producing a righteous outcome. If you really want to make a difference in this world, make the difference, but your anger is just going to get in the way of that. Now, in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, what's fascinating, so books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, for instance, um, the wisdom literature always associates anger with the fool, not with the wise person. So in, like here, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Or in Ecclesiastes, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Now, the Psalms have some wisdom Psalms in them too. And one of my favorite Psalms in the Bible is Psalm 37. And in it, it says this, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. Do you know what fret is? Worry, anxiety. And you know, when I was reading that wisdom Psalm there, I recognized something about myself and probably maybe all of us. When I get angry, it's usually when I am anxious. Anxiety and anger go together quite well in my life. Anxiety and anger, hmm. 
And where's the anxiety from? Somehow I'm feeling threatened. Somehow I feel like something's coming at me. Something is taking away something. I am, and then I'm anxious, and then my anger comes out as a self-protective mechanism. Now, unoffendable is not a new concept. Brandt Hansen did not invent this. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, it says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is glory to overlook an offense. In other words, this is as old as the wisdom literature in the Bible. And here, in Ephesians, even after Paul says, Be angry and do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, just a few verses later, then, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, notice, all bitterness and wrath and anger. He doesn't say, hold on to some of it. You know, most of it's not good, but this part is okay. He doesn't say that. He says, let go of all bitterness and anger and clamor and slander put away from you along with all malice. There's none of that that I am given to have. Now, I started reading this book, like I said, about seven weeks ago, and oh my goodness, the day I started reading it was one of those days. And God is like, I think it was Vicki who said last week in our home huddle, I could share this about our home huddle, right? You know, what usually happens in a home huddle stays in a home huddle, but I think um, this was not, she goes like, John, you are going to be tested while you are doing this sermon series, and there are going to be so many things that will provoke you to be angry about during this series. I'm going like, yep. It was happening right when I was reading this book. I was trying to get ready for something. I come to church, and I get into the office, and I try to use the printer here, and there's no ink in the printer. And then it's like, oh, and you know how it's like, I've got to get this done. And so I figure out, I look everywhere for the ink. There's no ink. I go over to Walmart, and Walmart does not have the ink. It's empty. He looks in the back. There's no ink. I have to run across town, find the ink for it. I get back here, and then I have, I keep, and then I find out, you know what happened next? I get back here, and there's no paper. <laughs> this is right when I was starting to read this book. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And I it's like, oh, my goodness, I really get angry quickly. Just a little ink and a little paper, and I'm already ticked because life isn't going the way I expected. It shouldn't be this way. Mm. Yeah. I'm always expecting that life should be differently than it is. Right? And when I do, I set myself up to be ticked. Brand Hansen said it well in this book, okay? He says, you really can't believe politicians would lie. You can't believe a preacher would cheat on his wife. You can't believe someone would try to steal from you. You can't believe a neighbor would set off fireworks at 2 a.m. You can't believe a world leader would tyrannize his own people. Are you going to live in perpetual shock at the nature of man? Now, he goes into this, and you can watch. Um, if you go to YouTube, you'll find a few videos that talk about this, Brand Hansen and Undefendable. And I put one on our E! News that was on Focus in the Family that was really good, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, in it, he goes like, yeah, you know, when people say at work, I can't believe my mom said, yada, 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 yada. And it's like, really? How long have you known your mom? <laughs> Has she been talking like this for a while? Yeah, probably 47 years. So. 
it's time to start believing this is the way she's going to be. But we are always in outrage at people. Isn't that a fascinating? Okay. So being unoffendable means being slow to anger. Do a gut check this week. I mean, I'm trying to do this, and it's scary starting a series like this. I'm sure it's going to happen time and again. Just take a note every time that you say, I can't believe dot, 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 dot to someone, or you're, to yourself. What's going on there? Take note every time that you get angry at traffic or whatever it is, where your anxiety level is. Whether it's at your kids, your spouse, the traffic, the weather, um, so-and-so said they were going to do something they didn't quite follow through, or it didn't happen as fast, or time's behind, or whatever. Check your anxiety level and see why you're responding in anger so quickly and what's really going on, okay? You might find them all related. So that's what offendable, unoffendable is meaning today, okay? Got that? Now the question is why? Why be unoffendable? Now Proverbs said it's wise. The wise person is unoffendable and the fool is offendable. But why is it wise is kind of the real question, okay? Why is it? It seems like today the people who get ahead are the ones who are yelling and screaming and protesting and twittering and tweeting, I guess, yeah, and, um, and Instagramming their offense and their outrage and their moral certitude on every point under the sun and I can't believe it-ness about this and that and the other thing and thumbs up and, you know, posting and reposting and sending forward and bumper stickering it and everything, right? And it seems like we think it works. And shouldn't Christians just be, be offendable as well because at all the injustice in the world and just look at it and just like shout it out just like everyone else? Does that really work? Or are we just looking like everybody else? And so um, we're going to just focus on three points of why I believe it's important to be unoffendable in this world, okay? The first is just this. Anger doesn't improve your judgment. In fact, it clouds it. I don't know if you know that. Now, I used to believe, and I've heard be, uh, in counseling classes, anger is a great emotion that clears away all the crap, and you know exactly what the issue is. But at the same time, anger held on to in any form really clouds my judgment about other people and myself. Okay? I don't see people clearly. And I don't see myself clearly when I'm angry. I assume there's a huge bias when I get angry. I'm right, you're wrong. I have nothing, I did nothing wrong in this situation, or at most 10%. And here's the deal. When I think it's only 10% of the problem, it's probably 50 to 70% of the problem, right? Now, years ago, I read a book by the Arbinger Institute. Um, I've read a couple of them. It was in a class I had for leadership called uh, Leadership and Self-Deception was the book. And in it, they state basically what happens is when I get offended at people, what's really happening is not that they offended me, but I had a probably something I did actually 
brought about me looking at them in an offensive way. And in the end, when I get angry, what happens is I deceive myself. I betray my own values, what I really say I'm all about, love, compassion, truth, justice, caring, humanity. And instead of seeing the other person anymore as a person, I see them as an object. You're in my way. Like I have said numerous times, semi-jokingly but not, when I'm on the highway, get out of my way. This is my road and you're in my way. Do you understand how that goes? It's very easy when you're in traffic um, that the other cars and vehicles, there's no human beings in them. They're just things. <laughs> but that's what happens with anger. Anger turns people into objects of your wrath. And they're no longer human beings. They're no longer equal. From an I-thou relationship, as Martin Buber would say in his book, to an I-it relationship. And you probably know what it's like to be treated like an it by another human being. Not pretty. Now that book actually takes cues from the Bible. So for instance, here in Ephesians 4, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Do you notice that? So I, when I'm speaking the truth to you, I need to see you as an equal to me, as a member of one another, not as something, but someone. You can only speak truth when the falsehood of anger is gone and the blinders that anger causes. Jesus, I think, said much the same. In the Sermon on the Mount, you might know this passage well. Judge not that you shall not be judged. For the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the same measure, uh, the, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice what's going on there. I can't see clearly with the log in my eye. I think I can, but my anger causes that. And I can inspect and see the microscopic issue in your life and think I'm seeing clearly when I am not. Brian Hansen says, offense obscures our vision. Removing offense enables us to see people in wonderfully new ways. So the first point, why be unoffendable so you can actually see things clearly? Secondly, or B, being unoffendable, being offended is exhausting. Do you realize that? It's tiring when you're always offended all the time. Have you realized how much time you waste on anxiety and anger in your life? So uh, Debbie Strong wrote an article in Everyday Health, and she says this, however, unhealthy episodes of anger, when you hold it in for long periods of time, then turn it inward or explode in rage, can wreak havoc on your body. If you're prone to losing your temper, here are seven important reasons to stay calm. Now she lists them. Increased heart risk, increased stroke, depressed immune system, increased anxiety, increased depression, harming your lungs, decreasing life expectancy. Do you need more? Now, Proverbs puts a positive spin on those who are slow to anger because you gain strength from that. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than the one who takes a city. And Brand Hansen 
looks at this too, and you can do this when you're angry, just realize what's going on. He says, anger and rest are always at odds. You cannot have both at once. So ask that question. I'm angry right now. How at peace am I? How at rest am I? Am I exhausted? Am I exhausting myself? If you've ever wondered why you're so tired from work when you realize your job is not physically exhausting at all, it might be emotionally draining. And sometimes that might be as a result of anxiety. And sometimes it might be at the result of resentments and angers of, I can't believe so-and-so didn't get this done and I have to do it now. And how much time I waste and how much energy I waste in my week and deplete myself. Now, it might be something else that causes you to be so exhausted at work. But I'll tell you, anger depletes you. But the most profound reason why is Jesus. See, he took our offenses and accepts us by grace. You know, the refrain that occurs again and again in the Old Testament, starting already in the book of Exodus, when Moses is on the mountain and going all the way through it to the New Testament, it occurs eight times as is, the same phrase again and again about the character of God, and then at least six other times in a, a derivative form or in a kind of corollary to it. And it's this phrase from Psalm 103 is one example. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. This is who your God is. And we see when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, comes to earth, he is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love. And you might say, yeah, but he did get angry. He can handle his anger. He handles it. I don't. I'm not righteous in the first place, so how do I expect right, righteous anger to come out of an unrighteous person on my own? Do you understand that? Anger is kryptonite to the Christian. Get rid of it. So we see Jesus lives it out. And time and again, if you read through the gospel accounts of the stories of his life, it's just amazing. His own town turns on him and tries to throw him off a cliff because they can't stand him. He is called every name under the book. He's called an illegitimate child. He's called a racial slur at that day, Samaritan. He is considered everything under the sun. He takes it all in. Romans 15.3, Paul says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. All the reproaches, all the anger, all the attitudes against God fell on Jesus Christ himself. He took our reproaches and he didn't return. He responded to our disdain with his love. He responded to our indifference with even more compassion. He responded to our arrogance with his own humility. He met our self-righteousness with his mercy. He loved his enemies. He prayed for those who persecuted him. He forgave those who slapped him, insulted him, accused him, and even crucified him. This is not hypothetical or theoretical. This is actual. Why be unoffendable? Because of Jesus. Okay? So I should be unoffendable 
It's a good thing to be undefendable. It's healthier to be undefendable. It's what I'm called to be, but how in the world can I possibly ever be unoffendable? Because I know myself. When you get to that question, you ask that question right there. Praise God. You recognize your own human nature. It's like, how is it possible that I'll ever get over the angers that I have? Because it's just amazing how much. Okay? If you're honest with yourself, you know it's not going to be you. So when Paul said, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, don't give the devil an opportunity, he, in a sense, is saying, there's a place for your anger, but it's not in you. Put your anger where it really belongs. God can handle your anger. God has no problem with you being angry with him. He loves you. Do you know, I remember as a child, um, <laughs> kind of a funny, odd story, but already in fifth grade, um, I had to get glasses. And I hated the idea that I needed to get glasses. And just about a month prior to that, we had, there was a solar eclipse. And, um, and so my dad had gotten a couple of negatives together, and he had us look at the solar eclipse together. And I decided that because he made, a, he made me look at the sun through those things, that's what caused my bad eyesight. And I blamed my dad for me having to have glasses because I was nearsighted. Because of, Do you understand the logic of a child? But have you as a child, we're so childish, but we blame our parents for things, right? That had nothing to do with it. God handled, my dad handled it very well. You know, he didn't yell at me or try to point out logically this makes no sense. <laughs> God, your father, can handle your anger. And that's where it belongs. You know, the first time anger comes up in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 4, and it's between two brothers, <laughs> figures, and Cain is angry at God that his sacrifice was not accepted by Abel's was. And God looks at him and says, you know, anger, you know, temptation is crouching at your door. But instead of taking his anger and giving it over to God and having God work through it with him, Cain takes out his anger on his brother and kills him. That's the tragedy. God was more than willing to have Cain be angry with him and take it. God will take your anger. That's what the sacrifice of the cross, that's one aspect of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, is that he takes our offenses, our iniquities, our anger at God, and absorbs it in himself, puts it to death. He says, make me your scapegoat. Make me the sacrifice. Kill me. And you are crowning me for the one that you actually need. Blame me. Accuse me. I will take it all. That's who I am for you. Because I love you so much. You know, you might still be angry. There are things to get upset about in this world. And you might go like, look at all the injustice. Okay, great. But realize, look at who's going to bring justice. It ain't necessarily going to be you. It's not going to be me. 
There is a man named Miroslav Volf who's written a book called Exclusion and Embrace. He grew up, and as a child, he was in a Yugoslavia in Croatia and saw it just fall apart neighbor against neighbor, one ethnic group against another, serve against Croat, and saw people getting killed and murdered and maimed. And he says in his book, the certainty of God's judgment at the end of history is a presupposition for the renunciation of violence in the middle of it. Because God, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, because I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to right every wrong, ultimately end, means I don't have to to do it now. I can work for mercy and compassion today and let things go today because I know God's going to take care of it. Ultimately, he will. I can love my enemies because Jesus loved me when I was his enemy. I can be slow to anger because God has been slow to anger with me. And he ultimately took out all his wrath on his own son for my sake. So Miroslav Volf says again, one can embrace perpetrators in forgiveness because God has embraced them through atonement. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, because he was the offense, I can become unoffendable. And Bran Hansen says, this is how you start looking like Jesus in this world, refusing to be alienated and put off by the sin of others is what allows me to be Christ-like. Now, if you want, you can be truly offended in this world on a daily basis. You can join this culture of outrage. You can be, and over time you will lose every one of your friends because they will offend you. And you'll lose your neighbors. You may even leave a church because it's just not righteous enough for you. Because you get offended at, well, they just, I can't believe so-and-so or such-and-such. But you then also lose out. And you can, in the process of trying to save your face, you can lose your own soul. Or you can choose the path of Jesus, and be unoffendable. Recognize that Jesus is the one who's never been offended or ashamed of you. Loves you as you are. Forgives you for everything. Welcomes you in. And boy, that changes me. Dallas Willard said, what we're really asking for is a sacrifice, a surrender. Stepping out of your anger means you're surrendering your will to God. It means you have accepted that you don't have to have your way. I don't play God well in traffic, in my home life, in my work life, anywhere. Let God be God, and I'll just be his. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this series. Thank you for the beginning of this. Thank you that you... Um, moved Brandt to write this book, we pray that it would be useful to you, that this series would make us a place where nothing just blows our <laughs> sense. <laughs> you know, nothing here. No one could come here or be a part uh, our, our, that we can welcome everyone with whatever messiness in their lives, Lord, and recognize you love them so <laughs> that your forgiveness covers a multitude of sins in all of our lives, that I don't have a right to my own anger, 
Lord, thank you um, that we can learn that. Teach us this week, Lord, to be sensitive to how we can be unoffendable for the sake of others. And if they ever ask, how is it that you, that we can respond simply because of Jesus? So bless this time, Lord God. We pray now as we prepare our hearts for both um, receiving the offering, Lord, for your kingdom's work here. And as we prepare our hearts and lives for uh, receiving the Lord's Supper, that you would, um, we, we don't come to you um, righteous on our own or thinking we've got it together. We surrender it all to you, Lord. The only one worthy to receive what you give here in the Lord's Supper, Lord Jesus, is the one who knows I need you. I need everything you have for me. So, Lord, for each one of us in all of our needs, we come vulnerable and open to receive all that you have for us. As you say, take and eat and take and drink. This is my body, this is my blood, that we would receive all of you for all of us, that we would be yours and you would be ours. Bless us, Lord, as we now continue our worship in these ways.